Welcome in. It's the Mostly Magic Podcast. Jake Chapman here with you. Record date is Monday, January 24th. Magic coming off a dub last night at Amway Center. A much-needed dub uh, over DeMar DeRozan, Vucevic, and the Chicago Bulls. 114-95 to was the final score. That was uh, leg number two of a five-game homestand. We'll see the Clippers on Wednesday at Amway Center as well. Magic moved to 9-39 and on the season with that one last night. Mo Wagner, 23 points. Uh, off of the Magic bench, provided a nice spark, and DeMar DeRozan, 41 in the loss. But Jalen Suggs is back now, has been back uh, for, what, about a week and a half, and he looks like a whole new player. And one man who documented that, I want to ask him about that and much more, Josh Cohen. He is on Twitter at Josh underscore Cohen underscore NBA, writer, digital content manager for OrlandoMagic.com. Does a phenomenal job with the breakdowns, um, slideshows, Josh, how would you say, how would you describe the work you do for OrlandoMagic.com? I would describe it a lot like a lot of our players on our team, which is versatile. I like to think of myself as a versatile content creator. It does vary depending on time of year. One of my favorite times of year, especially the last few years, is draft time. Oh, yeah. I love draft content. It's Draft analysis is probably my favorite type of analysis just because nobody really knows how these players are going to perform once they get to the league. But projecting and forecasting is fun, even if you're completely wrong in the end. And of course, I've been completely wrong many times, just like everybody, but it's just fun speculating. So that obviously is more toward the uh, beginning of summer, May, June, depending on when the draft is. But uh, last year, of course, it went deeper into the summer. And then during the season, yeah, it's a lot of like film room analysis, kind of analyzing player performances, team performances, things that the team is doing well, things the team can improve on. And what's great about this year's team is that because there are so many young players, it's constant ebb and flow, right? Like some nights the flashes are there, other nights they aren't. And it's great kind of going back and forth and having that fluid mindset because one night you might think one way of a player and the next night you may have a totally different view. And I think that makes it fun because unlike established teams where when you have veteran presence, you just know what they are at that point. And the analysis dips significantly because there's no more forecasting. A guy who's been in the league eight, nine, 10 years, you know exactly what they are. You know exactly what they're going to do. It's fun from an X's and O's standpoint. Because from a competition angle, it's great when you're sizing up teams. But when you have a young team, it's constant just player review and analysis. And like I said earlier, it just changes dramatically from night to night. I've had a different perspective of all of our guys throughout the season, and it keeps changing. Yeah, day-to-day, game-to-game, sometimes play-to-play and quarter-to-quarter. Um, yeah. And it's interesting that you say that. I hadn't really thought about that. If you if you did your job for the Milwaukee Bucks, it would be like, OK, get me to April. And then and then totally, we'll say, and, you know, and there, yeah. there isn't much to dig into right. there. You know what you have in that instance. It's all about how do the Bucks compare to the Nets, the Bulls, the Heat, you know, the Celtics, whoever it may be that they might face in the playoffs. To me, it's building up. We, we had that back in the Dwight Howard. Rashard Lewis, Hito Turkoglu era, where everything was about how do we match up with LeBron James and the Cavaliers, Paul Pierce, Kevin Garnett, Ray Allen and the Celtics, right? Even some of those lesser quality teams like Joe Johnson and Josh Smith with the Hawks, right? We played them twice in the playoffs during that era. So to me, everything is about anticipating matchups while this team is all about player progression. Mm -hmm. 
Um, that's interesting. And so, okay. So tell me this, have you started your draft prep yet? Cause I just about I, two or three weeks ago, I was like, okay, I think it's about that time. Yeah. I started it probably a couple months ago, to be honest, not because of magic specific anything, but just trying to get an idea of who the top tier talent will be in this upcoming draft. And as we get deeper and deeper into the college basketball season and G league season now, because yeah. obviously some guys come from the G league or even overseas, uh, it just expands the uh, analysis. And, and that's another thing that always changes throughout the season. Like guys that are projected to be top five at the beginning of the college season, sometimes are like late first round picks ultimately. And other guys who were supposed to be late first round, even second round climb all the way up into the lottery. And I think that's happening this year, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. So do I, it, it, it almost feels like this year and we will probably save a lot of this content for another podcast, but it, it seems like this year, you know, I, I felt like college basketball did a really good job at the beginning of the season of those non-conference tournaments, you know, Atlantis or wherever, um, of getting some really good matchups and getting them out there. And maybe it was just kind of people were starved to see Chad or, or Paulo. Um, and now you've got Jabari Smith at, at Auburn sort of really, really pushing his way to the top of the board. But it felt like it feels like it's that low right now. I mean, is it do you think it's just we're waiting for for conference tournaments um, or do, do you think it's maybe maybe kind of a down year as far as the star power goes. Certainly it's not Zion and RJ and Cam um, or even necessarily last year, but you know, the, those guys have some buzz. It just feels like it kind of nobody's talking about it right now. Maybe it's because everybody's talking about the NFL and, and, and other things in the sports world. Right. Right. No, unquestionably. I think it's all about preference at this point because yeah. all the top guys have different skill sets. And like you said, we'll get into that another time, but I think what it's going to come down to is what teams and scouts prefer because if you look at the guys at the, the guys at the top of the board it appears that they're different in the way they go about their games and i think depending on what certain teams need will determine what direction they go there's no clear cut number one right now although i think some guys are emerging more than others but i do think based on the criteria of what normally goes into determining who should be the first pick or second pick I actually think ultimately will depend on who gets those picks because mm. it varies in my estimation based on skill set of, of need and skill set of preference. You know, it those just depends. Guys on what, are, those three guys are, are, are fairly different prospects, aren't they? They are. They are. Yeah. I mean, Jabari Smith to me, he is a blend of offensively. I look at him like Jason Tatum or Brandon Ingram, but defensively so much more stifling, you know, Bancaro reminds me a little bit of a Chris Weber type. And, uh, you know, Chris obviously, Weber, Chad, who, who's the last player you saw that looks like Chris Weber? That, I, I don't yeah, know it's a rarity nowadays, right now. you know, like the way he plays at the elbow and he has sort of this uh, maneuvering around the basket. That is pretty impressive. And that Sports, body, I mean, he's already got a pro body. Right. He's already got a pro body. And, you know, Chet Holmgren's probably more Chris Stapp's Porzingis type, uh, you know, and we'll see how it all develops. But I think uh, all those guys have tons of potential for sure. Good comps. I like those. Um, will you take me through your process a little bit as far as putting together an article? Like, for instance, the one you did last week that I was um, looking at that I really enjoyed was on Jalen. Um, Jalen's come back, what, three or four games back. You pulled the numbers and, and you know, the, the, the field goal percentage numbers sort of leap off the page at you if you follow this team. Um, he, what did he shoot? 30 percent in October, 36 percent in November before the injury. And then he comes back and he's shooting like 56 percent. Um, and so, you know, I, I think anybody who follows a team can see that. But then how do you turn that into a really, really good, extensive sort of deep dive 
Um, I know you use Spectrum Sports, but I, 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 I'm just interested in your process a little bit. Yeah. So to me, like there are so many different aspects of basketball, obviously. And to me, it's just a full breakdown of each component. It's the scoring, it's the passing, it's the defense, it's the rebounding, it's all the intangible stuff. And it's just kind of looking at it all piece by piece and then trying to connect dots and see where guys are at based on this stage of their careers and also comparing them to where other guys were at their stage of their careers. If you're trying to make player comps, I think with Jalen, just to give kind of an idea of the way I'm viewing him right now, I think since he's come back from the injury he clearly his conditioning is much better. He's already stated that. And I think it shows on the court. He's got his explosion back. Now he didn't have a, a leg injury before he had a, you know, a, a finger injury, which you wouldn't think would have any correlation to the speed of a, of a guy's uh, ability on the court. But uh, he definitely has more burst on his drives. His explosion has definitely been glaring. He's been getting to the basket at will. And that's been probably his main positive since he's returned. Obviously, there's still ambiguity about his scoring arsenal and his shot creation package. He is right now going full force to the basket almost every time, which is yeah. great. And he's drawing a lot of contact on those plays. He is not afraid of contact. We knew coming into the league, the fact that he had played football in high school, he is very willing and, and very much so okay with sacrificing his body. His free throw attempts are going to continue to rise. Yeah, There's always a concern with guys like this from an injury standpoint. We all know everybody's been talking about that with John ja Morant from day one. It's like, eventually he's, it's going to go so hard that he's going to get hurt, right? It hasn't happened yet for the most part. He's had some minor ding-ups, but uh, John Moran's going as strong as ever. So uh, it's working out well for him. I think with Suggs, to me, what really needs to improve more than anything else is his body control and balance on his drives. Because so many times it seems like he's not sure whether to just throw his body into the traffic and draw the contact or try to maneuver away from defenders to try and get a clean shot off. Right. And it's causing his percentages to fluctuate. To me, if he can clean that up, I think he'll be a much more potent scorer because we know physically he's got the capability to blow by defenders and also has the ups where he can, as we saw last night against the Bulls, he can rise and dunk with authority. So for at his size at about 6'5", that's very impressive. Whether he's a lead guard or a combo guard, I think put his head down and just go accelerate to the basket, get downhill and just, just power your way through. The other aspect of his game that is still unknown, and this is the thing that we really didn't see at Gonzaga either, largely because he never had to be that guy playing with Corey Kispert and Timmy, you know, and so many other guys that were NBA or pro bound is can he develop a shot creation package from the mid range and also from three point range when he has the ball in his hands, his pull-up jumper has not been good so far. Uh, it's something that over time you would think with more practice will improve. Uh, he's shooting a little over 20% on pull-ups, which of course, is a low percentage, but he hasn't taken that many of them, largely because he's still trying to get comfortable with the NBA flow. To me, if he's going to be a prolific scorer, which he doesn't have to be. Right. I mean, at the end of the day, he could be a great playmaker. We also didn't talk about the defense yet, which is elite already. Mm -hmm. And that's going to continue to get better as well. But from an offensive standpoint, if he's going to be a 20-plus point-per-game guy in his prime, He's going to have to develop more 
versatility out of pick and roll, right? Like we see it with Damian Lillard, Kemba Walker in his prime, now Darius Garland. Those are guys that are just dynamic out of the pick and roll where they just know how to get to their spots, pull up, you know, basically get a defender on your back and hit a little floater, which I think Jalen's capable of doing. Uh, I'm not saying he's got a floater like Trey Young, for instance. Trey Young's got one of the best floaters of all time. Yeah. And uh, if he can sort of develop at least Trey Young light as far as a floater, then that'll add more to his offensive uh, repertoire. Um, right now, we're just seeing sort of a, a baby Jalen Suggs in the sense that he's all about using his physicality and his speed to try and outmaneuver opponents. But from a technicality standpoint, from a systematic standpoint, if he could add more to his package, it's going to open up so much more opportunity. And that remains to be seen. So that would be like, as far as just a, a breakdown of Jalen to this point, that's probably what I'm seeing the most. But as far as what went to that, what went into that article, yeah, like I just look at every little piece of the game and then look through the numbers, the stats, and also look through the uh, the footage, right? Go play by play and just get an idea. Okay, what did he do well on this possession? What did he not do well in this possession? And you know, like since he's come back from the injury, it's been a mixed bag. Uh, I think his fourth quarter play has been very impressive. I mean, he had 11 of his 15 points in the fourth last night against Chicago. He was pretty much, he pretty much steered the team and that went over Charlotte, you know, several nights ago uh, with his fourth quarter play. Um, We knew coming into the league, great vision, great instincts, tenacious defensively. I mean, you could already argue he's among guards. You could even argue he's already top 15 defensively among guards. I think, I think that's far-fetched. Um, I'm not, he's not, he's not built like Marcus smart, right? He's not quite built like drew holiday, but I think there's a lot of commonality in terms of the style, the technique defensively, he gets in your face, right? Like everybody compared him to Davion Mitchell coming out into the league and they're both great defenders. Uh, I think Davion's a little bit more Marcus smart esque in terms of the way he plays defense. Well, I think Jalen uses his quick uh, footwork. And his, his, his lateral movements, along with being tenacious to play good defense, he gets his hand on passes, he causes deflections, he'll take charges. We saw that last night. So he's got a nice blend of things to make him a good defender or great defender, at least potentially. Uh, but the offense is really what, you know, when you're a fifth overall pick, uh, the expectation, of course, is that uh, you can be a, a prolific, you don't have to be a prolific scorer but you have to at least be someone who can dabble in different areas on the offensive side of the court. He's capable. We'll just see how it evolves. Do you, how difficult is it for you to find defensive numbers or defensive numbers that you trust? Is that, is that? Yeah. Well, the, the, the one that's most documented is what they call defensive field goal percentage, which you can, you can define this in many ways based on the way the, uh, platforms define it is simply if you're the closest defender to a shot, which is a very skewed percentage. Cause if you think about it, sometimes you could be like five feet away from a, a, an a offensive player or a shooter and you still get counted for being the closest defender. Yeah, pick, so pick it's a little roll, unfair. Like, pick and roll. If they're switching screens, you got a jumble of four guys there and somebody's shooting a pull up. Like who, like how do you it's a little unfair. I think the, the way that kind of is effective in determining how well someone is defending is if they're contesting like if you look at just contested numbers and you look at the opponent's field goal percentage, like contesting matters. And usually if you make a good contest, make a good contest, it lessens the like likelihood that the player is going to make the shot. I mean, history shows that contested shots generally are more often missed than they are made compared to wide open shots. Yeah. 
So the more a guy is contesting, uh, simply the less likely it is that their opponent will score. Now it depends on the quality of the offensive player. Like if you have Kevin Durant or Kyrie Irving or Jason Tatum shooting over you, well, it may not matter, right? Because those guys are just elite offensive players. But uh, if you're guarding a, an average scorer who's erratic, like not to throw anybody under the bus, but if you're guarding Harrison Barnes, for instance, who's up and down, right? Or even Buddy, I'm thinking of Sacramento guys for some reason, but if you're thinking of kind of hit or miss guys, their percentages are generally lower when you have a good contesting defender on them who moves his feet well, who has good instincts, who just gets – Gets in there, it gets in their way, right? Is a pest, um, and so I, I kind of value some of those defensive numbers, but you always have to take it with a grain of salt because you always, to me, the footage, the eye test is more important than the numbers in that instance. See, so I find that interesting because I, I, I think for somebody like you, because you were very analytics driven, um, and I've known you for a long time. There's like, is it chicken or egg? Do you see the number and then you're like, okay, I'm going to, let's see if the eye test matches this up. Or are you sitting right. there watching the game flow and you're going, okay, I'm noticing this. And then you try to find the numbers to back it up. It goes both ways for sure. I mean, it goes both ways because obviously you can't have your eyes on everything, especially in live action. So right. you have to go to the numbers and be like, okay, is this what I think it is? And if it is, then the numbers might back it up. In other cases, yeah, the eye test will be the most prevailing factor. And then you can use the numbers as evidence as right. to prove, okay, this is true. Like my eyes are not deceiving me. Like this is legit. And I remember, you know, Aaron Gordon's rookie year, he obviously got hurt in the middle of that year, didn't play very much. But I remember early in that season being like, there's something different about this guy defensively. We didn't know if the offense would ever come along and it's still kind of a question mark, but the the defense stood out to me, but, you know, back then there weren't as many numbers to look at. You know, yeah, this was like yeah. 2014. Things have changed now with like uh, second spectrum being a part of the equation. But like I remember looking at it being like he has something defensively. Now, it was part of his uh, MO coming into the NBA. But, you know, everybody just talked about the extraordinary athleticism, the dunking ability, the highlight reel stuff. But like really, as we're learning, as he continues to play is is defense is really what matters most especially on that denver team but um i remember telling myself i'm like there's something about this guy defensively and then you know there weren't as many numbers to back it up but then i would look at more and more footage and be like yeah there's something here right and and i think it showed in his time with the magic and now with sure, denver sure. but uh that's just an example of how the eye test to me especially defensively uh really dictates opinion you know because you know, I coaches will always say it like at the end of the day, a big part of defense is just how hard you work, right? Like, yeah. are you willing to get up in a guy's face? Are you willing to take them every step of the way and not give them any breathing room? Of course, lateral quickness, size, length, you know, fundamentally sound play, which is what makes Franz so good. That always matters, but you can't be a good defender unless you're putting in max effort. And fortunately for our team, we have guys that put in max effort, so that bodes well for their futures. In this day and age, I, I swear you can tell just how, how much do you get glued to screens. Did, can you fight over a screen in, right. in 2022 in the NBA? Then right. you know, then you're already working with something because I, I can you can write off a guy or at least a guy for a night uh, when you watch right. him just get glued to the first three screens of the game, and it's like, all right, this is gonna be. Yeah. Yeah. And another big element now with more teams playing zone is that really, to me, coincides with a player's IQ. Like 
we all know playing like youth basketball, like zone was so common when I played youth basketball, I always had various thoughts about zone defense. I actually, when I coached a little bit back when I was in college and there were players, kids, I should call them, I guess, who uh, would always be like, why don't we play zone? Why don't we play? And like the problem with zone, especially for youth sports is that it limits the amount of effort they're going to put in because then they can kind of just position in one spot and think that it's okay to kind of sag all the time. I always believe man on man on man defense, at least at that level, is critical to get them to like actually put in the effort. Of course, in the NBA, it's a lot different and it's much more schematic and technical. But to me, what zone does do, it really helps analyze a player's IQ. Like how well do they play that positional defense depending on the matchups and how do you close off the lane and how do you make sure the perimeter is sealed? And like that stuff really matters in a zone situation. And like, I I think with man to man, it's all about the tenacity and the footwork and making sure you don't let your uh, opponent blow by you off the dribble. But like with zone, it's all about understanding where everybody is positioned on the court. So I feel like the mental side of it really comes into play. So with, with more teams playing zone, I feel like there's a lot more analysis of how fundamentally sound a player is defensively. Yeah. And I think it's, there's a lot more anticipation if you're playing, if you're playing zone and, and you're, and you're figuring out how the opponent based on your scouting report and, and your personnel are, are going to attack, then you should be able, you should be in the right position. You should be able to anticipate right. Um, right. as opposed to, you know, that man is just sort of reading and reacting. Yeah. Jalen in that Los Angeles game, you're sitting down there. I'm up on the radio deck. Did it feel like that was a different Jalen early on in the game? I mean, it just felt like he came out and was talking and was squawking and was under LeBron's skin about 10 10 seconds into the game. Then, of course, you get the the hard foul. uh, And then LeBron's tweeting after the game. And I didn't know if it was all connected or what. All I do know is that over the last two games, Jalen Suggs has looked like a Tasmanian devil on the floor. And it, it looked like it started right at the very beginning of that Los Angeles game. Everybody gets up for the Lakers and LeBron, we know. Um, but you know, I was talking before he came back, I was going, this guy has the athleticism to be the player that we were talking to, to, to get into the lane and to just mash on somebody. And I think, you know, your first 30 games in your career, it's difficult to just be like, okay, I'm just going to do that against Robert Williams or against, you know, uh, Rudy Gobert or whoever. Um, it's a different level of trees at this level. But it, it it felt like it felt like something sort of clicked before that Los Angeles game, and then we saw it last night. I mean, he was he was aggressive last night, and I mean, that one dunk was just I mean that the the whole place was on fire after that one. Yeah, yeah. Like I said earlier, to me, his explosion has really stood out since he came back from the injury, and he does seem like a much more confident, determined player than he was prior to the injury. I do think the conditioning is a factor. Any but any of us who have ever played any sport knows that when your your endurance isn't as optimal, uh, that confidence and that determination might wane as a game goes on. Yeah. But right now, he could probably play eight quarters as opposed to just four if you really needed him to, because his endurance seems off the charts good right now. And yeah, he's had some like a uh, little Derek Rose moments these last few games. And I know, you know, I'm not comparing him to Rose because Rose was so acrobatic. You so see it though. I know exactly what you're saying. Mitchell, yeah. bro, he looks like a Chicago point guard right now, the way he's just flying into the lane and just attacking. Right. With, and look, it, it makes you and I nervous because we're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Right. But that is, but that's a great comparison. I mean, that's exactly what I'm seeing. 
Yeah, yeah. It's just a matter of because Rose was so good at finishing. He was so acrobatic. He was so creative. He had an ability to constantly change hands midair, avoid defenders. Like, and then of course he could slam it in your face, which Suggs can already do, right? He already shown that. Again, it comes down to understanding change of pace, right? Because a lot of times, you know, you'll hear this from coaches too. It's not so much about the speed that you're playing at. It's about how can you manipulate your defenders to change of pace, Yeah, right? The best point guards right now, arguably, are guys that constantly are changing pace. Like Trey Young is just amazing yep. at constantly manipulating his defense. Like Kyrie's always you don't know so what speed he's going to go out. Yeah, Kyrie, Damian Lillard's always been really good at that. Kemba Walker, not, not New York Knicks Kemba Walker, but Charlotte Hornets Kemba Walker was really good at that. And now we're seeing with Darius Garland. So good at changing space, uh, changing or even Luca, even Luca. I mean, Luca's right. start and stop is start and stop get that guy on your hip. Exactly. Exactly. It's just knowing at every little moment what the defense is doing and then playing to your strengths and diminishing their strengths. And that's what Suggs has to figure out because it was one thing in college to just constantly go full speed ahead and use your speed and athleticism to outperform your opponents. But in the NBA, clearly, as we see from the top tier guys, it's it's all about recognizing the weaknesses of the defense, understanding what your strengths are, and then capitalizing on all of that through your change of pace, through your change of speed, through the manipulation. And I feel like as time evolves, I think Suggs has the ability to do that because he has such great vision, timing, and instincts that once he reads the game better, he's going to know exactly when the right time is to find a teammate or to explode or step back and just kind of be a surgeon out there. Right. I think the best point guards or even combo guards are surgeons. They just break down the defense piece by piece by piece, kind of like doing an operation surgeries. They just pluck here, pluck there, plug in here, plug in there. And it's just, it, it just makes you, you know, makes the defense constantly question what they're doing Mm. And I think we kind of saw that the last couple of nights with Suggs by the fourth quarters is the defense wasn't completely sure whether he's going to burst all the way to the basket or kind of in a pick and roll stop in the middle and try to find a guy for a pick and pop or a trailer. Mo Wagner has really excelled with that playing with Suggs. I mean, Mo Wagner is one of the best trailing big men three-point shooters I've seen in a long time. And playing with Suggs makes it a lot easier. Because we, saw a pretty good one. we saw a pretty good one for the last, uh, what, eight years here. We saw him last night, too. True. Which, by the way, that's, Very true. Other, that's probably a whole other conversation. I think I, I'm going to ask about that in a minute, what's going on yeah. with number nine in Chicago. Yeah, but. yeah, yeah. No, I, I sure. I don't I don't want to uh, diminish <laughs> everything Vooch did the last several years with that. But, uh, but yeah, no, no. Mo Wagner, to me, has thrived playing with a guy like Suggs because of that reason. And uh, I, I think just over time, as Suggs gets more comfortable, the game will come easier. And I've always assumed, you know, I know, you know I'm, I love player comps. Player comps, though, have a tendency to go awry as time evolves because no yeah. players are exactly alike. The Jason Kidd comparisons to me are semi-legit just because I, I think when Suggs gets more and more comfortable and he grows into his body, like we could see the statistically the assist numbers really rise, but I, but I think in transition, I mean, like Jason Kidd is one of the best of all time at not only flying up and down the court, but finding guys in the perfect spots when the game starts to speed up. Yeah. Suggs is really good in transition, like either finishing himself or dropping it off to a teammate 
because he's so comfortable playing with that reckless abandonment. I think it's part of his football kind of mentality where I, I actually pointed this out in an article recently. He reminds me when he's in the open floor of a quarterback scrambling away from defenders to try and get as many yards as possible. Mm-hmm. I, I know you're a big football guy. I mean, whether it's like Lamar Jackson or, 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 or Jalen hurts or something where like, it's, it's, if, if you don't have a play to make in the moment, scramble and just try and like dodge defenders on your route. And then eventually something will open up and he's really good at like, it's almost like eluding tackles where he's shifty and he has this ability to kind of like, it's not so much change of pace at this point. Cause I think he, he needs to improve that, but it's like quick explosions here and a quick explosion there. And then before you know it, he's off to the races and sometimes he could finish on, a, on his own, but other times he'll find it in a kickout situation. He'll find a three-pointed shooter in the corner or a trailer, or he'll just drop it off to a teammate for a dunk. We've seen that many times. And the Lakers game, you know, he had the nine assists, which was a career high, and he did some of that. And I think his, his assist numbers will be fine. I mean, he, he has the, 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 the recognition, the pinpoint passing, the ability to find guys going back door, cuts, lobs we're seeing that with Wendell Carter Mo Bamba so I think assist wise to me there's no doubt now we'll see what it looks like when he plays with Markel Fultz but mm-hmm. that's another separate conversation um but like from a playmaking standpoint I've never been concerned about that ability because to me he has that made just a matter of getting more and more comfortable with it I think within the half court which this is what you were referring to when he gets more comfortable at the second and third level everything else is going to open up a bit, right? I mean, if he's, look, shooting off the bounce is, is one thing, but even um, spacing the floor and just being comfortable in the mid-range and creating from there, everything, and, and it's by design, everything is inside out right now, which is great because he is, he is very comfortable getting inside. But it felt like a lot of the struggles we saw earlier in his career or basically first 30 games of, um, of his career he was getting himself in trouble because he was getting into, he was collapsing the defense and then it was either go to the rim or kick back out. And he was sort of, you know, he was sort of sped up at that point. I think once he starts knocking down perimeter jumpers with regularity, it's probably going to change drastically. Let's talk about Mo Wagner because I mean, the numbers tell you, this is like the best offense. <laughs> He's got the best offensive rating on the team. I think behind General Schofield that was going into the game yesterday, true shooting percentage. He just does so many things well. Sometimes he does a little bit too much when he's out on the floor. Um, but I think, you know, I think the numbers are basically telling you good things happen when Mo Wagner's on the floor. Granted, it's a small sample size, and a lot of times he's been playing garbage time minutes or at least, you know, minutes when um, when the health and safety protocols were kicked in. I mean, it's, it's difficult to dive too deeply into the numbers with him, but it just feels like every time he's on the floor, good things happen. Yeah, I think what's helping him lately is the fact that there are more playmakers on the floor to help him thrive. Yeah. Mo Wagner is a off-ball player, obviously, and he needs guys to get into the paint and find him on the perimeter because he's a really good floor spacer. He's a really good outside shooter. He's really good at pump faking. And that we saw that a couple times last night against Chicago where he pump faked Vooch, got him off the dribble, and then dunked. So he has enough athleticism to get his way to the basket. But really, his biggest strength is what causes – defenses to close on him is the fact that he's a 6'11 shooter which we've seen in the past just 
you need guys like that. We saw, I remember, you know, going back several years, Ryan Anderson, he transformed into a most improved player in the NBA because of that. And when you play with guys like Jameer Nelson, Hito Turkoglu and, and Dwight Howard, of course, it's made easier. But to me, with Jalen Suggs returning, that makes a big difference. Also, his brother, who we haven't gotten into yet, is, I just mentioned Turkoglu. I keep, I, I brought this comparison up many times, but he so much reminds me of Hito Turkoglu from a playmaking standpoint. Now, Turkoglu was a much better outside shooter. Franz is much better footwork on his drives to the basket. Turkoglu also had like a little bit of a mid-range game, which Franz currently does not. But we yep. can talk about that after. Um, Franz, now they're brothers, so you would kind of expect this, but uh, they have really good chemistry. Now, it's funny, though, because up until now, they've never played together on an organized team. So just because they're brothers doesn't necessarily mean that it's automatically given they're going to have great chemistry, but they're proving to have great chemistry, uh, not just because they're brothers. I think when you have multiple playmakers on the floor, including Cole Anthony, now granted Cole Anthony's more of a, a sharpshooter or a, a scoring threat, I should say, more of like a sniper uh, than he is a playmaker, although his assists have been really high. And I think it's because he draws so much attention from the defense. But uh, when you have all these guys you can create for others, it helps a guy like Mo Wagner because either as a spot up guy, uh, the one thing I would like to see this magic team do more of is get more open looks from the corners. Cause they're right now they are bottom five in the league in corner three point shots, which I think for a guy like Mo Wagner, who's a great corner three point shooter, it would be nice to see him take more of those. Do you have I, a theory as to why? Well, you know, it was puzzling because the last few years with Steve Clifford, we were always like bottom. We were always either last or, or next to last in corner three-point attempts. So it's a little perplexing. Uh, we're, we've been, I say we, but, you know, for whatever reason, the team the last several years, not just this year, has been more of a top-of-the-arc wing three-point shooting team. And I think a lot of it is because our bigs are more comfortable shooting from the top. Like, we know with Vooch, Vooch is a top-of-the-arc three-point shooter. So so many of his looks were either, either Evan or Markel Fultz getting in the lane and there being a pop back to Vooch at the top. Evan, even though he's a guard, he was he's so much more comfortable shooting from the wings, right? If yeah. you look at his numbers, the, the, the over-majority of his three-point looks come from the wings. Um, I think it's similar with like Mo Bamba and Wendell Carter. They're much more comfortable shooting from the top. So because of that, when our guards get into the lane, they're looking for either Mo or Wendell at the top. If they're not rolling, then they're popping back to the top. It seems to be the most common thing. I think the one guy who's gotten a lot of three-point looks from the corners, and has made many of them, is Gary Harris. Right. Uh, he's a very good corner three-point shooter, and he's the one who's been getting most of the looks from that spot. So – it, I think once we're at full strength, we're going to see more corner three-point shots because Markel is so good at serving the, the, the perimeter when he gets into the paint. Right. And right. the other guy that is going to jump into the equation eventually, who's a really good three-point corner shooter, corner three-point shooter, is Jonathan Isaac. That's probably Isaac's sweet spot. You know, when he was healthy uh, so many times, he'd be found in the corner off a driving kick, and he knocked down a lot of those threes. So – uh, I think that when he comes back into the mix, we'll see more corner three-point shots taken. But if you look at who the best teams are in the league, uh, almost always they take an abundance of corner three-point shots. Because as we all know, statistically, uh, the highest percentage three-point uh, shots are taken from the corners. So shorter distance. Also, they're usually more open because, again, if you collapse the defense, there's usually more opportunity on those corners to find 
uh, an open shooter. And it, so should I, be, it should be an easier look. I mean, if I am, right. if I'm in the lane, then, you know, you've got to, you have to either know who's right behind you or, I mean, obviously, I mean, I think it sets up for a high screen and roll Bombo or, or Wendell, the pick and pop. Um, and usually you're going to have a wing player is the one space in the floor in the corners, but it does right. feel like if it's not Gary, it's not happening right now. And it, right. and it is, it's kind of interesting. I'm not sure if it's by design or if that's just sort of, um, uh, the nature of the personnel right now. Yeah. We just don't really have like a three and D guy right now. Yeah. Right. If you look at like some of those top tier teams, they all have like a guy who just kind of hangs in the corner. I mean, I think of a guy like, I know he's playing for Portland now, but he played on like Houston for instance, like Robert Covington, right? Like James Harden or Russell Westbrook on that Houston team would sneak into the paint. And then Covington just happened to be wide open in the yep. corner so many times because you know, the, the attention that a guy like Harden or even Westbrook draws is going to allow a guy like Covington who knows his role to be left open in the corner. And it's all up to him to not knock the shot down. I feel like some of those top tier teams, we see that uh, play out pretty frequently. And, you know, even, you know, like even I remember like the Toronto championship team from a couple of years ago, I feel like Serge Ibaka was one of those guys that kind of hung in the corner a lot and was able to relish off the driving kicks from either Kyle Lowry or Kawhi Leonard. Um, I don't have those numbers in front of me, but it always just based on the eye test, just seemed like he was kind of left open in the corner to yeah, not Tucker. You and I were talking about Tucker before air PJ I mean, Tucker. Yeah, I should have, I, I mentioned Houston before I should have mentioned PJ Tucker. That was the obvious one. Um, yeah. PJ Tucker's clearly one. Uh, I just feel like, you know, we see that more and more, um, with, with those floor spacers where if they can get open in the corner, they're able to uh, really capitalize because they're just good outside shooters from that spot. All right. Let me ask you about a guy we haven't talked about, and that's RJ Hampton. Um, I think there's, there's a lot of similarities with RJ and Jalen in terms of the bad, right? In terms of the almost going too fast and getting into the paint and still trying to figure out getting to where you're comfortable in those instances. And obviously he's out right now. And hopefully, because I think, look, we saw it with Cole last year. I know it's a very sort of um, uh, intangible concept, but Cole's time off last year very clearly helped him see the game a bit better. Jalen's time off this year, it feels like has helped him see the game a bit better. The hope is that that happens for RJ. I think RJ is obviously a different player. He's um, he does have a perimeter jumper that can sort of be the bedrock, I think of his offensive game, but it does feel like RJ gets sped up and kind of gets into no man's land and sometimes he leaves his feet and you get those leave the feet turnovers which drive coaches and people like you and I nuts I'm sure but there's obviously so much potential there how do you see RJ's game progressing and 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 can it happen do you think as quickly as when he returns this season well the one thing he clearly has improved upon this season is on ball defense his on ball defense he wasn't known to be a defender coming into the league but I really feel like that's been his strongest attribute so far this season he's had a couple of games where I felt like he really locked in defensively and not necessarily shut down his opponent but certainly made it difficult so that's really stood out to me and we know with the athleticism and the quick feet and his size right I mean he's a legit like six six at this point so he has the length and the athleticism and physical attributes to be an effective defender anyway and now it just comes down to the mindset which I think he's done a good job of so far this season but you're right as far as the offensive end it's all about like it's kind of similar with Suggs in the sense that he seems to only know one pace right now and I really feel like if he could develop a little bit more shiftiness on his route to the basket it'll make him a much more complete offensive player uh, the, the, the three-point shot's going to come and go with him. I mean, we, we know that that was not his strong suit coming into the league. He's definitely improved from distance, 
but I don't think he was ever projected to be someone who can just kind of like spot up or even pull up off the dribble and knock down threes consistently. It's all about the speed aspect of his game. Uh, I know a lot of people coming into the league compared him to Monte Ellis, which I think is still maybe within reach. You know, Monte was so good at creating space, carving up defenses through his, again, his, his change of pace. Yeah. And he could step back and hit those mid-range jumpers. Shoot off the bounce, really, really. Shoot off the bounce. I mean, he was so good shooting off the bounce. And I feel like if RJ can just figure out, like, when to stop and pop or when to explode inside, um, I think that'll make him a much more complete player. Um, I definitely think he's more of an off-ball guard. He's not a lead guard. Yeah. I know that there's been a lot of back and forth when he and Franz play together is like who really is the point guard in that, in those units or in those lineups. Um, and I think he's just better off when the game is sped up and he can really accelerate. He's much more effective when he can use that speed to uh, capitalize on his strengths. Cause I think when the game slows down, he doesn't quite know when to just kind of almost like calm down. And I feel like, when there's more and more good players playing around him, I think he'll be able to figure out what his best assets are and really go after that because we know, again, physically he's capable of doing a lot. It's just a matter of reading the game better and understanding, you know, when he can attack or when he could stop and pop and when he can, again, kind of, evade defenders based on using his uh his extreme athleticism i think that's an interesting um sort of philosophical question um because i've been going back and forth with this and i don't think there's a right answer necessarily but like coach mosley and his staff there are sort of dual dual parallel tracks here as far as the goal goes right like this is a development season and so coach mosley and his staff know that they're going to be here for a while and with a, a player like RJ, I do wonder if you sit there and you say, okay, I'm pretty sure this guy is going to be an off-ball player um, at his best, but I've got kind of, you know, another 40 games or whatever to play with here. Maybe the development process is we put the ball in his hands and we just sort of bite the bullet and say, we know that the results aren't going to be what we want right now, but in the long run, he's going to be better for it. How do you, how do you kind of balance that if you're Coach Mosley and the staff just the idea of, look, this might not be what is best to win tonight, but in the long run, RJ Hampton's going to be better for it if we put the ball in his hands with the second unit. Or, and that's just an example I'm using. But, you know, I, I feel like Coach Mosley and, and staff have done a really good job of kind of keeping that in the back of their minds. Like, this is a long term vision, but it's got to be frustrating. I mean, you covered Clifford and Van Gundy. You know, those guys don't go out there and say, all right, we might lose tonight, but it's going to pay off next August. Um, you, you want to go out and win every game. It, it, it's kind of tricky in a year like this, isn't it? Yeah, I, I think with young teams throughout NBA history, it's all about throwing stuff up at the wall and see what sticks, right? Because in the end, like, let's be real, some of these guys are going to stick and some of them are not, right? The, the team as is currently constructed will not be the same exact team three years from now, certainly right. five years from now, right? Some guys are going to still be here. Some maybe guys are five, not. Maybe not five weeks from now. <laughs> right. That That's just inevitable. So right now it's just a, it's a, to me, you experiment. And I think we're seeing a lot of experimentation, guys being plugged into different roles, being asked to do different things to see what their strengths are, their weaknesses are, where they can improve, uh, where they're struggling and just keep going forward from there. And I think with all of these guys, like for instance, I feel like Franz's role has changed dramatically from the beginning of the season to now. I mean, in the sense that he's being asked to play make a lot more now than he did earlier in the year. And I feel like 
even to a degree, Suggs's role has changed a little bit. I feel like in the beginning of the year, he was very much uh, trying to constantly play out of pick and roll sets and trying to create off the dribble for stop and pops where now he, like we talked about earlier, he's doing much more explosion plays where he's getting all the way to the basket, drawing fouls. And, you know, I feel like all of this right now is just surveying the field and just trying to get an idea of how could we best utilize these players going forward. And then going into the summer, determining where it is that they need to really hone in on to try and make the best possible upgrades to their overall games. So I think the coaching staff has done an amazing job, just kind of dabbling in different lineups, different situations, not focus too much on just zeroing in on, okay, this guy does this well. So we're not going to have him do anything else because we're not comfortable with him doing that because that, that would actually defeat the purpose. Exactly. And, and, and just real fast, like the RJ thing, you know, I, I see a lot of the conversation is like, RJ's clearly not a lead guard, take the ball out of his hands. And I'm going, well, you know, at, at some point he has to handle the ball. Like I understand right, that, you, that right. you know, the, the different, the different lineups that you put him in and who's on the floor with him is going to affect all of that. But if at any point you want to develop his ball handling skills, this is the time to do this it. This is the time to do it. You're absolutely right. Right. Yeah. You're absolutely, you're absolutely right. Like I said, I mean, to me, it, it's a tough job for a coaching staff when, you have to you have to highlight a player's negatives in their face, yeah. right? Like you have to tell it like it is. You have to be real with them. Like I mean, just I, like what I was talking about earlier. Like I remember coaching kids, and like there were times where I was so afraid to tell them, like you're not very good at this. So we really want to work on this. But to me, with NBA players, it shouldn't be as difficult. But for some reason, it seems like it is because they all have you know experience playing at the highest level, and they and all believe making more the money. Thing. How are you supposed to tell somebody right. who can right. have you fired tomorrow that they suck yeah, or something? <laughs> it's tough, but I feel like that's what's making this coaching staff so effective is that they do a really great job communicating to yeah. guys who are young, inexperienced and still learning the game and I feel like you need players to accept that but you also need coaching coaches to accept the fact that there's going to be difficult conversations and I'm sure behind the scenes there's been a lot of difficult conversations for coach Mosley and his staff sure. like it's just not easy showing someone a, a slew of clips and being like you messed up here. You messed up there. You messed up here, but it's okay. Cause we're going to keep working at it. And that compliment sandwich, you got to put the compliment in the middle. Right. That's, uh, that's effective yeah. management. Yeah. It's the only way to get better. And I think we'll see some of this stuff really dramatically improve going into next season when they have a full summer yeah. to again, kind of zero in on the things that maybe they need the most improvement in. I'm just envisioning you just wrecking the confidence of an eight-year-old. Just like, look, look, Joey, <laughs> you're terrible. You are terrible, Joey. You know, it was actually harder talking with the parents. I, I, I don't know if you, you've coached before, but I'll tell you one story. This one I'll never forget. And uh, it sticks in my mind. Um, so I'm coaching youth basketball. There are a bunch of 12-year-olds. And well, I should probably preface, I don't want to go too deep into this because it could get too long-winded. I will start off by saying this. So just like in the NBA, there was a draft for all the players in the league, which sounds kind of crazy for you sports, but that's the way it was set up. That's how my baseball leagues were. I remember. Were they? Okay. So there's a draft and I'm new to the whole thing. I'm 19 years old at the time. I'm the only one who's not a father 
amongst all the coaches, right? Because most of the time it's someone's father who's going to coach the team. I'm the only one who's not a father because I'm new because I'm the newest guy in the mix. They have me pick last, but it was a snake draft. So I'm picking last in the first round and first in the second round. There was an audition, a tryout, if you want to call it that, like a week earlier, just to get a look at all the different players that were going to be in the league. There was one kid that stood out to me. It was a point guard. To me, he was clearly the best point guard in the group. And as the first round is going, and I remember I'm picking last, I think there were like 15 teams, I want to say. Okay. This kid's not getting picked yet. And I'm like, Salve, I'm like, this is amazing. Like, I might get the best point guard in the league because everybody obviously has no clue what they're doing. They're not noticing that this kid might be the best point guard in the league, and I'm going to get him. So it's my time to pick. He has not been picked yet, and I pick him without any hesitation. Uh, With that next pick, because, again, it's a snake draft, I pick another kid who I noticed in the audition. I was like, this guy looks pretty good, more like an off-ball player, like an off-guard, shooting guard type. So – I come to learn like two weeks, three weeks into the season that the reason that these kids were not picked as early as they probably should have been from a talent standpoint was because they had some difficult dads. Uh-huh. <laughs> they had some difficult dads. And I was, I was informed of this, uh, you know, a couple of weeks after that draft. And as time evolves, I come to realize like as a 19 year old, like I got to step up my game here, right? I got to become more of a communicator with the parents than I do the kids. So I had some fun uh, phone conversations with, uh, with the dads. And uh, there was one particular time after a loss. And again, this is recreational basketball. This is hot, low stakes, no pressure. This is whatever, but this is down here. This is in Florida. Or, or no, yeah, this, this is, is actually in New Jersey. Okay. Jersey. This is New Jersey. Yeah. So, uh, and uh, I get a call. It's like two in the morning. And one of the dads calls me. He's like, what was going on out there? How come this kid wasn't playing? How come you guys weren't playing this it's style two of in defense? the morning? It was late at night. I want to say it was around two. And like, obviously like I'm like sleeping and I'm not thinking clearly. And I'm trying to explain as a 19 year old, like, here's my philosophy. Like, and I really oh didn't God, even have God. a philosophy. I didn't even have a philosophy. I'm just, I'm trying to be like a young adult trying to like figure out like not just the game itself and like learn it better, but how to like manage children, <laughs> like almost like babysit. So uh, it was a, a tall order, but you know what? It actually helped me in the long run. And I feel like as that season went on, I got more and more confident as a coach because it made me more comfortable having difficult conversations. So uh, that's kind of like my story with that. It, it's it, yeah, it's kind of a fun, it was the kind of a fun, the guy, he was hammered. He had to have, had <laughs> he might've, I don't remember, but uh, I learned a lot <laughs> from that experience and it was a fun year. We were a pretty good team, but I think we lost in like the second round of the playoffs, something like that. Um, but uh, it, it was fun. I coached, I coached in that league for two years. And uh, like I said, I just learned a lot from that experience and the communication part is so significant when it comes to coaching. Right. And I would imagine at any level, high school, college, pro, it's all about communication, like how well you can get through to your players, you know, how well you can not just break down the X's and O's, but recognize how a player reacts to certain situations. You know, you want to keep their confidence up, but you also want to tell it like it is. You don't want to like completely um, fool them into thinking something that's not accurate. So like I said earlier, I think this coaching staff for the Magic has just done an unbelievable job at keeping the spirits high and making sure that their confidence remains at optimal level. Because when you're a 9-39 and 39 team, it's very easy to dip your head a little bit and yep. think that things are going south when actually 
they're not, and the players recognize that. Can you imagine Coach Mosley getting a call from Greg Anthony? <laughs> Maybe he has. Maybe we need to ask him that. We, <laughs> there could be some under the radar phone calls going on that we're not aware of. But uh, uh, look, character funny. concerns, Josh. I mean, they, look, they, they, he slipped yeah. in the draft. They, they were super talented, but you never know what right. the what the family yeah. is going to bring. Right. Um, that is great. That's a great story. Thank you for sharing that. I love that. Um, I try to make an analogy to our uh, topic of discussion. I thought oh, that's what came to mind. Absolutely. Um, gosh, that is, um, I mean, if you were 19 and they were 12, you were barely older than them. Anyways. I know. I, mean, I know. At the time I felt like a 45 year old, you know, when you're in that position, it just feels different. Like looking back, like I was a kid myself, but when you're in that position of kind of authority in a sense, yeah, automatically you just feel like you're older. Like I remember always feeling like, man, I'm taking on responsibilities that the normal 19 year old probably shouldn't be taking. But again, it, it made me I, I, not only did it make me to me better at like communicating with people, but like certainly helped me learn the game more too, sure. like just coaching it. So uh, that definitely, that definitely turned out to be a great decision to get involved. Oh, could, yeah. Kudos to you. I am 37. I get nervous when I have to watch my niece and nephew for, for an hour, yeah. uh, let alone taking out a full youth, youth basketball team. Yeah. Um, all right. Good stuff. I don't want to take any more of your time. This is fun. As always, we got to do it again. Uh, make sure you guys read all of his stuff at orlandomagic.com josh underscore cohen c-o-h-e-n underscore nba on twitter um always fun josh i appreciate it man yeah i appreciate it jake thanks so much for having me on yeah of course there he is josh cohen jake chapman here with you we'll be back next week with another edition of the mostly magic podcast till then stay safe everybody